So, hey, good to see you. You guys look good. Hey, if you want to jump in, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today as we're continuing to go through the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the fourth of five examples that Jesus gives us of a righteousness that goes deeper than behavior. See, if God was only after good boys and girls, he would have sent a teacher, you know, because teachers know how to keep people in line. Instead, God sent a savior to rescue us from the brokenness of the heart. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing us is showing us what a life looks like that loves God and expresses that love by loving their neighbor as their self. And so today, we come to this really historic, very well-known passage. Often people that have never read the Bible know nothing about Jesus. They know about turning the other cheek. And so let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, the word of the Lord. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, well, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, as we recognize that you are with us, Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you heal, would you open our eyes, would you reveal the presence of God among, among us? Allowing us, Father, to know you're with us, but also teaching us where we are. As we gather in your presence, Lord, you long to gather your children to instruct and correct and rebuke, but, Father, to love and to train us up. And so for each person here and those that are watching online, in Jesus' mighty name, would you be our teacher and would you bring, would you bring the healing that you desire? We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is the quotation from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this passage is actually found three times in the Old Testament, and it sounds, according to modern standards, pretty barbaric. And the idea was if somebody offended you or if somebody committed a crime against you, you could not go beyond that which was taken. Now, when this law was given, this was actually quite revolutionary because in ancient times, and if we could be honest, even today, the way of vengeance and retaliation rules the human heart. I mean, if somebody hits you, what's the reaction? I'm going to hit you back. But listen, when I hit you back, bud, it's not just going to be like the way you hit me. I'm going to go just a little bit further because, see, that's what my heart wants. I don't want eye for eye. I don't want arm for arm. I don't want life for life. I want a little bit more. I want life and a half. You take one life, I take one and a half. You take two, I take four. Because in the human heart is this desire for vengeance and to take things just one step for forward. And sociologists will tell you, psychologists will tell you the myth of redemptive violence, it just doesn't work. And so in this passage, Jesus is quoting a passage in the Old Testament which really did bring about justice and equity into the world. And we find it in three places. Here's the first. It's in Exodus chapter 21, verse 23. 
And it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, 19. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall also be given to him. And again, it sounds in many ways cruel or even barbaric. But the reality is what God was doing in this time is basically saying vengeance cannot be a part of the life of someone who worships me. We don't return violence with violence. And as Paul would say, we do not return evil with evil. Rather, we respond to evil by overcoming evil with good. As Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount what the kingdom of God looks like, it's a life that isn't ruled by hate. It's not ruled by selfishness. Selfishness says, get all I can, own up on what I want, and get back from you anything you've taken plus interest. No, but the kingdom says, instead of seeking your best interest, we worship the God who sought our best interest, who is willing to lay down his life and absorb our vengeance in himself, so realize, so that we might have his peace. And if this is the God that we worship, then in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it looks like, not just simply to obey God's commands, but to have a heart that is not ruled by hatred or vengeance or contempt or bitterness, but rather is ruled by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God which pursues love and peace and joy. Now, the reality is, hey, can we be honest? I love me some redemptive violence. Christmas Story is going to be on television. You know, we're going to probably watch it pretty soon here. And when Ralphie just goes off on the bully, all of us want to be in that situation where the person who has taken advantage of us, and Ralphie doesn't just hit him once, right? I mean, that would be enough. Instead, what does he do? He gets on top of him and he just unloads all his aggression, all his little 12-year-old pain, all his hurts. Everything is coming out of him. And I guess some few, few words that kind of get bleeped out there. Ralphie is unloading all the pain in his life onto this bully. And it's not just simply Ralphie and the bully. The whole neighborhood's watching. And how many of us want to be in those situations where the person who has hurt us and caused us pain, we just obliterate them. I mean, it feels so good. And we love movies like that. We love Bruce Wayne and Batman. He goes into Gotham City. How's he going to fix the city? By kicking the tar out of some really bad guys. And when you think about Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne was a millionaire, trillionaire. If you look at the, the kind of devices that he had, the technology that he had, these, these bat cave the money that he must have had to develop this stuff, if he had taken that money and invested it into Gotham, you know, maybe he sent out $2,000 to every person. Maybe he put in new opportunities, new economic systems, health care, all that kind of stuff. He could have done that. It would probably have led to a better city, but not a better movie. Because the reality is we love redemptive violence. We, we enjoy it. And God is saying in this passage, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, when evil comes against you, you, you need to stop. You need to take a deep breath. Do not take vengeance. And so these laws, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, arm for arm, the idea was not if my son comes home with a broken arm, 
I'm going to walk over my neighbor's house and, and break the arm of the neighbor kid. That's not how it worked. These were laws that were put in place for judges and for elders to, pour, to, um, to bring about justice. And so a case would come to a judge and the judge would determine, is this case valid? Was this an accident? Was it intentional? And is the person telling the truth or if they're lying? So the third passage where it says eye for an eye and tooth for tooth addresses this idea of justice in Deuteronomy 19.18. And it says this, the judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness, and hear this, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So if you come claiming your arm was broken and you want them to break his arm, guess what? The other arm's gonna get broken as well. You bring a false claim, the penalty for that claim fell upon you. In verse 20, watch this. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So these laws did three things. One, they took away retaliation and violence in the public square. Instead, they moved it into a system of justice. That was the first thing. Second, the penalties that came fit the offense. You knew that people wouldn't retaliate beyond what was done. And then third, it brought equality. It didn't matter if you're a slave and your arm was broken. It didn't matter your status in life, you're rich, you're poor. Everyone was treated equal. So when it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that brought equality, it brought justice, and it brought things out of the world of vengeance and into a world of justice where communities were allowed to thrive. Now, in that place of justice and in that place of community, Jesus is now speaking because these laws... In ancient times, they set Israel apart because the reality is the ancient world was a world of violence and vengeance. The nations around Israel would retaliate with violence, and God says to his people, not you. For those who worship me, vengeance is not the way of life. Now, Jesus takes this very good law, and he says, we got to go deeper. Because remember, we need a righteousness that's not just about obedience, not just doing the right things, not good boys and girls, but rather a heart that is reclaimed and redeemed by God. And see, a law itself cannot transform your life. God has to get into the heart, into the motives, into the mind through his spirit and begin to reclaim and to change it. How are you going to do it? Jesus says, you got to go deeper. The justice system isn't enough for a disciple of Jesus. See, justice is good, but see, what God is after is not just sacrifice, but mercy. God is after grace, and he's after grace in the heart that moves out into the world in the same way that God has moved towards us. So listen to this. This is John 13, verse 34. Jesus is speaking, and he says, A new command I give you, that you love one another. But notice, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, when he says a new command... From the beginning, God said, love one another. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament. The difference is now we have an example of the depths of God's love. Love one another as Jesus has loved us. Jesus was willing to pour out his life unto death for us, willing to take our vengeance on him so we can have God's peace. Now Jesus is saying for those who are disciples of Jesus, it's not arm for arm, it's not tooth for tooth. Instead, your goal is to seek the benefit even of your enemy. Why? Because that is the God we worship. 
We worship a God who's rescued us through enemy, self-sacrificial love. And this is how we are supposed to move out into the world. So let's jump back into this passage in Matthew chapter 5 and try to unpack what Jesus has in mind. So verse 38, you've heard that it said, and here's that passage we talked about, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 39, but I say to you, here's how we're going to go deeper. Do not resist the one who is evil. So when evil comes against you, do not resist. I want to resist. Now, this doesn't mean be passive. This doesn't mean just take it. This doesn't mean become a stooge and allow people to take advantage of you. When he says resist, what is it we need to resist? We need to resist evil. And Scripture says your enemy is not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. And what we're resisting is returning evil with evil. Do not, he's saying, do not compete with an evil person. Nobody wins. When violence comes against you, when evil comes against you, what do you need to do? You need to say, whoa, wait a minute. I need to stop and acknowledge I am not the judge of the world. There is one who judges justly. It's not me. I need to acknowledge God in in, in this moment, and I simply need to step back. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. Now, as we jump into this passage, realize this is a passage that has lots of different applications. Christians across the board have applied this in different ways from pacifism, from saying anytime that evil comes against you, you always respond with nonviolence, all the way to where I think in some ways when you look at it, Jesus, is, is he saying this is how we always address evil? Or as you look at the examples, is he saying, is this how we respond to insults? Is this how we respond to personal injury? Because see, Jesus was speaking to an honor-shame culture. In that culture, your reputation, saving face before the community, it meant everything. And in all four of these examples, someone is being insulted, they're being shamed, some kind of injustice is coming against, against the person. And so the question becomes, how do we apply this? And the reality is, though Christians disagree, the one thing we agree on is we do not fight evil with evil, but rather the way to destroy evil is to overcome it with good. So let's jump into four examples and begin to kind of wrestle through how do we apply this in our own life. So here's the first example, verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, you already know what's going to happen. Turn to him the other also. Turn the other cheek. How many of us just despise that request? Now, we need to understand what it means. This isn't something that would happen between two equals or between an inferior and a superior. What he's describing is a master and a slave. He's describing a rich and a poor. He's describing someone with power and someone without power. And when you slap somebody, and this is really important because this doesn't make sense in our culture, always use your right hand. Not because everyone was right-handed. It's because the left hand was the hygiene hand. What does that mean? The left hand was your crap hand. Your right hand was your slap hand. Listen, when there's not water and sanitation, it matters. You don't want to be slapped with the left hand. So when you slap somebody, you would backhand them, which is the greatest of insults, and you would slap them on the right cheek. 
Jesus is saying for a disciple, for somebody who follows me, whose heart is being transformed by the God that sacrificed for them, how should you respond? Well, often we only have two options in our culture. Fight, flight. What does flight say? Flight says just sit there and take it. Allow the guy to slap you, cower, run away, protect yourself maybe, but really the reality is just simply take it. Jesus is not saying simply cower and take it and resent the other person. Now, what's the second option? Fight. Fight is you slap me, I punch you. You insult me, I hit you. You cut me, I cut you. I shoot you, you shoot me, I take out your, it's gonna go a step further. Fight says, I've gotta go further, I've gotta go longer. What if there's another way? What if there's another way to respond? What if there's a more creative option? See, what happens when somebody slaps you on the right cheek and they've disrespected you and shame has been brought upon you, you can reclaim your dignity. How? Not by cowering. Because if you cower and you run away or if you fight back, that's going to be remembered and people are going to say, hey, he deserved it. But when you instead turn the other cheek, which means really stand and face them, what's happening is the vengeance and the evil that is done to you is now on display. And that person has a choice because if you've been slapped and you're now facing that individual, no longer with the right cheek exposed, but instead you now have the left cheek exposed, that person has to make a choice. I slapped you once. To hit the left cheek, I've got to accelerate. I've got to go beyond what I've done. And I've got to show them the fullness of my vengeance. Now, when this is happening, realize there's people around. More than likely, this is a scenario that's, been, that's happening within a community. And if you're willing to stand and claim your own dignity in yourself, to face your attacker and turn the other cheek, now the crowd is watching. And they see your dignity, and they see the vengeance. And if that person's willing to hit you, it starts to train and to teach the community that violence isn't going to get anywhere. It's beginning to reveal how good can overcome evil. And the more we begin to do this, it starts to shame the heart of the human being who continues to pour out violence and vengeance on people who have dignity and have self-respect and show that with humility and not in fighting back, but instead in a way that brings about good. And so this first example is not simply take it, but in turning the other cheek, what you're seeking to do is to continue to open a path to relationship so that the vengeance that has been done to you can get exposed. So that's the first example. Now here's the second. And this is a little strange for us, but verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, in this case, it's not in the public square. It's rather in a courtroom. And more than likely, a Roman is suing an Israelite because two Israelites wouldn't sue each other in a court. And so this is a Roman, and basically, he's coming for everything you got. To take your tunic means to take your underwear. He's coming for the shirt off your back. This is someone who is bent not just on justice but on vengeance. And here you are an Israelite and there is all this tension between Romans and Israelites and he's coming for everything you got. All right, if someone's coming for me, my my reaction is to do a Ralphie. I want to fight back. There are two options, fight, flight, or rather we can overcome evil with good. What does it mean to flight? It means just take it. 
Just give the person what they want. But in your heart, what are you feeling? You're feeling shame. You're feeling guilt. You're feeling bitterness. You're feeling anger. You're just simply retreating. You're not addressing what's happening. Or you can fight. In Israel, there had to be better lawyers than there were in Rome. You get one of those guys, you go after his shirts, you go after his kid's shirt, you go after his business, you take everything he has. You fight. Jesus is saying, what if there is a better way? What if there is a way that reflects what Jesus has done for us? What if there is a third option of creative love? So here's the picture, and it's kind of hard to tell if Jesus is being serious or he's joking because you're in a court of law, and most people had two garments. They had a tunic, which, again, is your underwear, and then you had a cloak. So if someone has taken your tunic, your underwear, that means all you got is a robe. All you got's a coat, and you're out in a courtroom with the judge and your accuser, and you give them your cloak, what do you got left? You got nothing. You're standing in front of a judge and in front of your accuser absolutely naked. Now, is that humiliating? I think so. I'm not one of those people who's super confident when I'm walking around naked. Some of you might do that. That's not me. But here you are standing naked. See, by giving your cloak, really what you're doing, though you're bringing humility on yourself, you're taking your dignity back. Because what you're saying is the vengeance that's coming towards you, I recognize what you're doing. Hey, listen, have it all. And in Jewish culture, realize to be naked was an absolute taboo. But what it was worse is to force someone to be naked out of revenge. See, by giving them the cloak, by allowing that person to take it, it's now bringing the focus on the vengeance and the evil of the individual. People now see your dignity as a human being And what's hopefully going to happen is people are going to be convicted. The judge is going to say, that's enough. That's too far. The community begins to see that this isn't the way to do things. And instead, your dignity is restored. The violence is exposed. And people start to think, wait a minute, is this really the best way to do it? Is this the best way that we can respond? And so that's the second example. Now we get to the third example. He says in verse 41, if... Anyone forces you to go one mile, instead, go with him two miles. In this case, again, we're back out in the public, and this is a relationship between a Roman and an Israelite and a Roman soldier asking an Israelite to conscript, to carry their pack really uh, a thousand steps. And we see this actually in the book of Matthew when Jesus was carrying the cross. Simon of Cyrene was actually conscripted to carry Jesus' cross. And so what was Simon doing? He was going about his business. Maybe he was working. He was on a date with his wife. There's all this conflict between Romans and Israelites. And here comes this Roman soldier. He's stopping you from what you want to accomplish. He's keeping you from being successful. He steps in and says, you, carry his pack. Carry this, carry this, um, carry this cross. And the reality is that's incredibly shameful. And, and you had to do it for a 1,000 steps or basically just about a mile. So what are you going to do? You want to flight? Flight means you're going to have to carry it. You're not going to get out of that. But while you're carrying it, you're despising him, thinking about horrible things. You're, you're glaring. You're hating every single step, and, and you're wishing violence upon him. That's flight. Now, fight is, hey, listen, I'm going to carry this for you. And actually, in, in that time, there was this group of Jewish men. I think they were called Zakaris. 
and they would carry around these daggers. And what they would try to do is befriend the Roman soldiers. And when they get comfortable enough or when they're alone, they would take the dagger and just cut the Roman's throat. So that's another option. You can fight back or could there be a third way of overcoming evil with good? What does it look like? Well, you carry it the first thousand feet and then when he expects you to leave, you reclaim your dignity. You're no longer the oppressed. He's not the oppressor. You recognize his humanity and in recognizing his humanity, your dignity comes back to you and instead you agree to go the next mile, which brings attention on that person's vengeance. It brings attention on the evil that is done to you because in that next thousand feet, hey, it may be as bad as the first. He may abuse you. He may yell at you. Yeah, it may not go better, but it causes the person to think. And maybe a conversation begins to start and you start to see his humanity. You don't just see him as the bad guy, as a Democrat, as a Republican, as whatever it is. You see him as a human being. And you start to ask him questions. What is it like to be a Roman in a community that hates you? What is it like to live 1,500 miles from your family? Do you miss your family? Do you get to see your family? What is life like for you? How have you experienced this? How is life going? You begin to establish a relationship. You find out about who they are. And that raises your humanity in their eyes. It causes them to have dignity. It exposes the evil that is done. Jesus is brilliant in these examples because what he's doing, as Paul says, is he's heaping coals upon the heads of others. Now, when you heap some coals on somebody's head, you're not trying to burn them. We've all had an ember fall on our head, and what do you do? You, you jump. You push it off. What it does is when you heap coals on somebody's head, it wakes you up. And realize when it wakes you up, the reality, it's waking you up to the evil that is possessing you. Jesus is not saying attack your enemy because the, re the reality is your enemy is not your enemy. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Our battle is about waking up the people whom evil and vengeance have taken a hold of. When someone comes against you, you can choose to see them as a human being. You can dignify them. You can recognize they are created in the image of God and they are held by a spiritual power of evil that is also ruling over them. And when Jesus came, what did he do? Did he simply come to us and say, hey, you guys are all wrong. Get your life together. Start obeying the commandments. If you do this, then, then you'll get the prize. Then I'll start to love you. No, what Jesus did is he entered into our brokenness and he began to heal us by exposing our brokenness with his good. With self-sacrifice, Jesus woke us up. It's called conviction. When you heap coals on someone's head, they come alive and they recognize what they've done. Jesus is saying, what if, what if church, when evil comes against you, you say, wait a minute, whoa, I gotta stop. Don't resist evil with evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Now, here's the last example. This one's a little bit more challenging. It says in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who borrows from you. Now, in this case, you're not the oppressed. More than likely, he's saying you are the oppressor. And you're coming across the situation where there's a beggar on the side of the road, or maybe there's a tenant that owes you money, and he's asking for mercy. What are the options? Okay, we got the same two options. We got flight or fight. Flight is just give them what they want. Now, that may not be the best for them, and it may not be the best for you. The second option is fight. Fight says insult them, right? Go get a job. You know, do something with your life. Get your life together. 
Don't give them grace, but instead just give them the harsh reality of truth. That's option B. Option C says there may be a more creative alternative, which is build a relationship with them. When you see a beggar on the side of the road, God doesn't just call us to generosity. No, he calls us to incarnation. Remember God with us? It's God become flesh, dwelt among us. Discover who they are. Why are they on the side of the road? What's led them to that point? What's going on in their life? What's going on in their family? Discover who they are. When the tenant comes to you, find out what's going on in their life. Discover who they are. Build a relationship. And in that, you start to break down the injustice. Because more than likely, the beggar, he's different than you. He's not the same tribe. He's not the same race. He's not the same background. It's an opportunity to take down the injustice by overcoming our normal reactions with good. But to do this, you know what you need? You need to be aware And when evil comes against you, you have to pause and say, I've got to see dignity in myself and dignity in the other person. And instead of just responding, instead of being Ralphie, instead of being the Avengers, instead of being Bruce Wayne, I need to be Jesus in this moment. Because Jesus, by laying down his life, brought life and peace and joy and healing to the world. So how do we actually do this? Because this, I think if we're honest, of all the teachings, this is incredibly incredibly difficult. And there's a lot of ways to apply it, but to really understand how do we do this, we have to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the beginning, what Jesus does is he lists all of those who are blessed by God. And again, we would think the people who are blessed by God are the obedient, right? The good ones. You know, the good child, the one who gives, the one who serves, the one who does it right. That's not what he says. Who are the people who are blessed by God? Blessed are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who think God wants nothing to do with them. Why? Because, see, God is with them. They have something that attracts God to them. It's called humility. They think there's nothing they have to offer God. And God says, I just want you. You know what it says also? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who cry. Blessed are you who were up last night at 2.30 overwhelmed with fear, with anxiety. Why? Because God is with you. God is drawing near to the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are rejected. Blessed are those who feel like they do not have a friend. Blessed are those who are cast out because of righteousness. Why? Because God is with you. Here's the challenge we face. When evil comes against you, do you allow evil to write the story? I do. Because when evil comes against me, evil's just like, okay, my reaction is to fight evil with evil. Jesus is saying, no, wait a minute, confess. Which means, whoa, I'm not the judge. God, there is a bigger story at play. The reason this is so difficult is because we do not see the world the way Jesus sees the world. When Jesus saw the world, he recognized evil is not winning. Good is breaking into the world through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. Good is now coming into the world. Life is being born. When we look at the world, what do we see? Hatred, violence, yelling. You can conscript. You can take on that storyline into your life, and violence will lead to violence. Or you can confess, God, what I see I don't like, but what I see in you and what you've done has brought life and it's brought new life in me. I want to move out into the world in the same way you've moved towards me. You've got to start seeing the world the way God sees the world. Do you see the world as just a mess? 
just chaos, political fights, people hanging on to power, or do you see that God is at work? Good is coming into the world, and see the good God wants to do is the good he wants to do through you. If you're willing to say, whoa. One of those examples that is better than most is Martin Luther King. What I love about Martin Luther King, I mean, he's known for many things, but he was a preacher. And so there's this one moment in which um, he was at this rally, and it was late at night, I think it was like 9 o'clock, and somebody came to him and said, hey, listen, your house is on fire. Somebody has set off a bomb. He leaves the venue. He goes back to his home, and in the streets are, are, are hundreds of uh, black Americans who are angry, who are, who are broken, who are saddened, and also who have guns and bats and knives and are ready simply to go out and to bring vengeance. And all of us could understand that need and desire. And once Martin Luther had, uh, King had discovered that his wife was okay, his two-month-old daughter was okay, he got on the porch while his house was still on fire. And you know what he did? He began to preach because that's what preachers do. And here's what he said. As, as this angry crowd of citizens is gathered around with the police and the fire department, he says, Jesus is still crying out, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. This movement will not stop because God is with the movement. Go home and with this glowing faith and this radiant assurance, realize the glowing faith was his house burning. The radiant assurance was a bomb that was set to destroy his family, his life, and instead of seeing the world through evil, he chose to say, no, good is breaking in. And you know, there's a police officer who was there that later recounted, if, if, if King had not done that, if he had not de-escalated, that would have been the worst night in Montgomery, Alabama, as all these angry citizens would have gone out and would have taken back vengeance. And so later on, King was reflecting on this moment, and here's what he said. This well could have been the darkest night in Montgomery's history. But something happened. The Spirit of God was in our hearts. And a night that seemed destined to end and unleashed chaos came to a close in a majestic group, demonstration of nonviolence. What can take the human heart from seeing anger, hatred, to a place of courage, self-confidence, and love. It's not a law. Arm for arm, tooth for tooth, that's not going to do it. It's the manifestation of love itself. It's the presence of God. Scripture says the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, dwells among us. And see what the presence of God does in the human being? He addresses the heart. If your focus is all about the evil in the world and all these people that need to change, well, that's not the focus of Christmas. The focus of Christmas is that God is with us and his desire is to reclaim and to restore the human heart by first allowing God to come in and recognize, I've got to be honest with God. God, I'm the violence that needs to be stopped in the world. The hatred that you want to stop is the hatred that's in me. 
The vengeance that needs to cease is not the vengeance out there. It's first the vengeance. I've got to humble myself and confess. And for some of us, we need to be honest. Horrible things have been done to us. There is pain and suffering. There is hardship. There is real pain. There is real hurt. And you, like David in the Psalms, just need to get honest with God. David would cry out to God about what he wanted God to do with his enemies and about the pain in his life. Listen, evil does take a toll, but see, God is willing to absorb it if we'll be honest in his presence, honest about what's going on in our life. And then second, if we're willing to set our eyes on Christ, Christ who incarnated love, who is willing to lay down his life for the benefit of those, us, us in this room, who are willing to reject him and crucify him and abandon him. God was willing to do that for us. Why? So that the vengeance that we have for others might fall on Jesus and the peace of God might dwell in us. You're not gonna do this simply. Sometimes you know what you need? You need the church. You know what the church is? It's somebody holding you back from vengeance. There are times you need community and you need somebody that isn't just gonna pray with you. He's gonna sit on you and he's gonna hold you down because sometimes you need that. But more than anything, as the church, as we support one another, we need the power of the Spirit of God to lead us out into a world of vengeance and violence to bring about the good news of the gospel that says violence isn't the answer. Vengeance doesn't solve anything. Rather, the God of the world was willing to lay down his life for us. Church, we've got to walk in that same spirit that God has pursued us. Hey, as we celebrate communion this morning, I'm not sure what pains that you might carry. It could be the hurts that others have caused you. It could be rejection. It could be pain and the sacrifice that should have come but didn't come. Whatever it is, would you, as we celebrate communion, simply lay that down to the Father? Lay down the pain. Lay down the hurt. Lay down even your anger. Maybe mention a few names of people in your past or in your present that are just simply their story and what they've done to you is is holding on too tightly. Let's take this time. And if you haven't grabbed the communion elements, please do as we, we're going to receive these together. And so let's prepare the elements. Let's allow the spirit of God to begin to work and to reveal in us what he desires to do. among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus, you were bruised for our transgressions. You, Jesus, were punished for our iniquity. The punishment that has brought us peace was upon you, and you tell us that by your wounds we are healed. Holy Spirit, would you reveal those things in us that lead to violence, And would we see in Jesus Christ the violence of our hearts and of the world being absorbed into the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, forgive us of our sins. We recognize that you've come to rescue us, not just to teach us how to live better, 
but Father, through the heart to make us dwell with the same spirit that dwells in you.